You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I've got a great guest. I've been looking forward to having him on for quite some time. I have Edgardo Griffith from EVAC, straight from Panama. And we're going to talk about the golden frog and much more. We've got a whole host of stuff that we're going to cover tonight. But uh, before we get into that, of course, the usual stuff. I want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Great way to support the show. It helps me get the show out to a wider audience. Nice five-star review with some nice comments. Easiest way to show me that you support the show. And uh, if you're looking to support the show in some different ways, check out the links in the link tree. It's one link. It'll take you to everything for the show. It'll take you to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And it'll also take you to the Patreon page if you want to become a patron and support the show that way. I have tiers as low as a dollar a month. And the most popular tier is the $5 a tier. That'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. And I've also got some Amphibicast merch. I've got t-shirts and whatnot also it's a cool frog swag. And if you're looking for a 10% discount on in situ ecosystems, follow the link in the link tree. Make your purchase through there. You'll get a 10% discount right off the bat for being a listener off your purchase. And a small commission comes back to me at absolutely no cost to you. So other than that, the usual stuff out of the way. Um, Edgardo, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. Uh, how are you doing tonight? Uh I'm doing good, uh, Dan. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm very excited to uh, have this opportunity to share um, part of what we've been doing for the last 60 years, um, you know, uh, directly associated to amphibian uh, conservation and research in Panama. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I um, we, we met for like a second of about six or eight months ago at American Frog Day. And um, I unfortunately, I had to leave before I, I got a chance to uh, look at your lecture. But I mean, I'm hoping we're going to cover as much as we can get into tonight because uh, I, I really regret not being able to make that. So I'm, I'm really happy to have you back on so I can, uh, we can just discuss everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And yes, I, you know, the, the event, it was, I mean, I, I never, I had never the opportunity, like never participated on of a, on a American Frog Day, and I was uh, so delighted. I, I really, I really enjoyed every moment there with the, with the, you know, so many people that love amphibians, and you know, it's it's is that one thing that that you know we. Um, we enjoy is to like share time and space with uh with like-minded people and yeah it's you know the the talk was i i wish i had more time to talk you know <laughs> but we did uh we, we we stayed there pretty late uh, but it was great i i really i'm really happy that julio and and the rest of uh, the guys that invited uh me to go there uh, yeah it was an incredible event i mean i remember being in a, a room with people that were so many different aspects of the whole the whole frog world and um i mean just for everyone out there who's listening obviously just to give this some perspective american frog day is an event that's held annually in different parts of the u.s uh it was held in my area this past october of uh 2021 and um it's just uh you know relatively small group of people but um people who are extremely I, mean, I hate to use the term influential, but but you know, influential people are um, like Edgardo. We had um, Ivan from Tesoros was there. Uh, we had a scientist from Germany. I, I really wish I could recall his name, but um, 
just some really great people were there and it was a really wonderful, um, it was just a really wonderful event. I, I had the time of my life and I was, honestly, I was sitting in a room with people I'd never thought I would actually meet in real life, which was pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Edgardo, I want to get into everything with EVAC and, and the Golden Frogs and all that, but I, I'd like you to tell us your story first. What, what were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians like and what led you to where you are today? Well, um, believe it or not, Dan, and everybody that's listening, uh, I I wasn't that kid that grew up loving amphibians and toads, you know. I, I was actually afraid of them when I was a kid. And mostly because my dad, uh, he was, uh, when when I was born, my dad was 60 years old and he was blind. He was blind, so he couldn't keep track of a, you know, of a kid. So one of the strategies that he used, he, he always liked to, to like live in the woods and have these houses where, you know, way, you know, away from people. So one of the strategies that he used was to scare me because I, I, I did, I, I was that kid that loved to be in the woods, just love it, was never afraid of it, was never, never felt, uh, you know, uh, the woods or, or the forest as, as a threat, but like I always felt that I was at home. But in terms of amphibians, uh, my dad told me that there was a frog that they call it the rana saltapecho, like the, the chest. Jump, jumping frog that would jump on your chest and it will suck your blood. So, and this was any frog that, you know, when you're a kid and you look at a frog that can't climb, you know, uh, walls, you think, oh, that, that, that must be it. That must be that, that frog. And later on, also when I was a kid, I was always fascinated with biology. I always wanted to study biology. Um, that I, I know, like, I remember since, you know, since I remember <laughs> that that was what I wanted to be, you know, and always inspired by, uh, David Attenborough and, and Jack Cousteau and all those nature documentaries. But, um, my dad died when I was 18 and finishing high school. And then that dream of being a biologist got a little bit kind of pushed behind because, you know, being 18 at the time, um, in 1996, it was, it was a hard time for, for a young person in Panama. But the next year I, I rolled in the university, but instead of studying zoology, which is what I had to study to be, uh, to, to be able to work with charts because I wanted to work with charts. Um, I had to study zoology, but being 18 and, and being able to, to read and, and learn more about how difficult the life of a researcher was, at least for Panamanians, um, and not having a, a father, I always thought about like, oh, I should pick a career where I can actually make a living out of it. So I, study, I started studying microbiology and parasitology. Um, because, you know, I wanted to be able to work with parasites and viruses and things that affect human health, because there's always money there, no matter where you go. You, you can always make money. As a technician, as a, you know, uh, as a lab technician or a professor or whatever. So in my last year of microbiology in 1999, I got invited to go to this um, 
forest that is called Santa Fe. It's a national park. And it was a field, uh, a field trip, a seminar to identify and manipulate snakes. I like to learn about snakes, which obviously I say, no, I don't, I don't think I, I want to be part of it. But then a friend of mine told me that this girl that I really liked her, I didn't even, I didn't even know her name, but I really liked seeing her in, you know, around the university. He told me that she was, she was also joining that trip. Of course, I say, okay, uh, now you're talking. Let's go to this field trip. So I went to Santa Fe. And of course, as soon as we got out of the bus from the university, there was supposed to be some off-road, like four by four cars waiting for us, uh, which they, they weren't. So we had to hike into the place where we were going to be camping for about an hour and a half. So we set up camp. But the whole way from the town of Santa Fe to this place where we were going to set up camp, I just kept finding frogs along the way. And my, you know, people that were in the trip were like, wow, you're so good at finding frogs. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, I, I wonder why. Like, and every frog I found, I was even more and more fascinated by. After we set up camp, we went out to the river, um, you know, it's just like almost a thousand meters above sea level, cloud forest, pristine, beautiful national park stream, and started finding glass frogs. This is at night, glass frogs and and harlequin toads, atelopus various, salamanders, snakes. And I was just like, oh my God, like really these animals are, are actually real. Like you can actually come and see them and find them. And they live in this beautiful, you know, beautiful forest. And I think that's where it started. I, I found what my passion was by like just having this opportunity to go into their natural habitat and seeing them in their environment. And um, it was so the the this this field trip was so influential and so important for me that I actually stopped studying microbiology and I rolled into into zoology started from second year. So I had to do three three more years of zoology because um, I wanted to do it right. I wanted to learn everything that I could about amphibians and reptiles. Um, and that's what I did. Um, so as I progressed in college, starting, starting zoology, I uh, read all these papers about amphibians declines and and this fungus and and how they were disappearing and and all these you know terrific um, reports on entire amphibian communities disappearing and no one was doing anything about it uh, at least in Panama nothing nothing that could create a positive impact about the amphibian uh, decline so. In 2001, I was um, appointed to be the field, but the field assistant for a project called Golden Frog Project, and I had the opportunity to go into the field every other every every weekend, and 
I will go every other weekend to this to one place. So visit the same uh, transect twice a month. And I basically had to just collect data on on golden frogs, and like phenology, all the reproduction life cycles, all their natural history, distribution, and and everything. And that that for me that was that was my university, um, being able to go every weekend to the field and search and work with golden frogs, um, which at the time were my favorite, you know, Atelopus was my fav- favorite group of frogs. Um, and then other things happened, you know, then I realized that the conservation model that Panama was using was to collect things and send it, send them outside of the country because there wasn't, um, we didn't have the expertise, the infrastructure or the economic resources to care for our frogs here. So I think that was one of my first uh, goals. And, and of course, having, having, you know, being able to meet some of the most amazing amphibian people like Kevin Zippel and, and you know, Joe Mendelssohn and Ron Galliardo and Roberto Ibanez. He was, he's a Panamanian, uh, a Panamanian hepatologist and he was also my professor. Um, and just, just seeing how much passion these people have or had at the time. Um, it, nothing was impossible, you know. Um, there was one person, Paul Crump, which was, he was a zookeeper at the Houston Zoo at the time. And we met and we just became really good friends. And he was a key person to convince others within the Houston Zoo in 2005 that it was worth it to build a facility in Panama to care for for Panamanian frogs within yeah, their um, area of distribution. And then, you know, that's where pretty much uh, everything started in 2005. Uh, I went, when we, when I stopped playing to be a frog guy and became a, a young conserv- amphibian conservationist that would put every hour uh, into doing conservation. And this was around the time that EVAC started, right? 2005? Yes. Uh, at the time, I was actually getting ready to go for grad school. And actually, when the people from the Houston Zoo came, the, the bean counters came to see the area where, where the project was going to be. Uh, I was out in, uh, <clears throat> in Virginia uh, visiting a, a program a grad school program, and uh, I, I miss them, but but the, the the damage was done. They were convinced that it was possible to to do something here, and that, that guy at Cardo was one of the best candidates to to be in charge of it uh, from the Panamanian side. So, and of course, with my my fiance Heidi at the time, uh, she was. She's actually the main reason why we did it. Uh, And she still is uh, one of the most important parts of what we do today. 
She's my wife now. That must have been such a substantial part of your relationship, having these frogs in your life for such a long time. I mean, we were talking off air a little bit about it, and it's decades and decades of your lives together, right? Yes. Um, you know, Heidi happened to be a, a, you know, a biologist. That she was a Peace Corps volunteer at the time when we met. Um, we actually met. She was still a, volunt- a Peace Corps volunteer when we met in this national park. It's called El Cope, uh, Omar Torrijos National Park. And um, she was she was also a biologist. So she had this, you know, love, natural love for 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 nature, you know. Uh, so we met on March 28, 2003, and on March 29, 2003, we invited her to go out and look for golden frogs, and that was about it. She didn't need uh, to see anymore. She was, uh, she got into it, and uh, we started dating, and and then she she was. She supported every idea I had and every plan we developed uh, together. And she found her niche within the different projects that we that we worked with. And and she she spent all the hours that more hours than anyone else on it. And she made it work. And from the get go, she knew that I was just a dreamer. And she believed in that dream, and she became part of that dream, and she is still that dream. <laughs> you know, she is still there um, as a, one of the most. You know, she's my inspiration and my my soulmate, and she's you know she's also the mother of our, our son Elliot. He's ten. So yeah, she was. She's done more for amphibian conservation in Panama than any Panamanian you know. You might know her. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of spouses out there that deserve a tremendous amount of credit. I, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who have a really profound impact and behind that person, or I shouldn't say behind, I should say bes- beside that person. Besides. Yeah, yes. there's yeah. always a remarkable spouse or significant other who makes that um, makes that dream come true absolutely yeah but you know at the same time it, it comes with a lot of sacrifices you know because at some point what you're doing is so important that you dedicate so much energy to do what you do with your partner that sometimes you might forget who your partner is you know at the personal level you just see the person that's doing something important next to you, but not who is sleeping next to you, sort of speak. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a thing that we, we always have to be careful with, you know, and always try to find a balance between what you do with that person that you love and love you and and how you, you complement every aspect of your life, not just the professional part of it. Yeah, it's important to, I guess, have some, dis- you know, some distinctions between, uh, I, g- I mean, I guess you can't, well, as much as we all would like to, I guess it can't be all frog all the time. <laughs> it 
cannot yeah. cannot be all frogs all the yeah, time and yeah. and it's it's kind of sad because frogs is what brought us together you know but at the same time you have to make a distinction between home being at home and being at work yeah and yeah. vice versa you know yeah <clears throat> and yeah because naturally couples you know uh, have arguments right we don't have to agree on everything but if the person that you argue at home is the same person that you have to argue at work <laughs> yeah i know that's i could see it, that being a, <laughs> when work follows you home yeah. I, I could see that being something that's um, a little bit of a, a little bit delicate yeah yeah but i wouldn't change her for the word you know she's she's amazing she's yeah awesome. yeah well, tell us a little yeah. bit more about e- EVAC. Um, I mean, we kind of touched a little bit about how it started, but in a little bit more detail, if you could tell us how, how it began, like what was behind it, and what are the goals, and what are some of the projects that you're up to today? All right, well, I'll tell you from the beginning. EVAC was this idea between Paul Crump, Kevin Zippel. Kevin Zippel at the time, he was, when I met him, he was the curator of uh, amphibians uh, at the Detroit uh Zoological Institute or something like that was called at the time. They had a massive amphibian collection. And uh, then in 2005, after I finished with the Golden Frog Project, um, these guys from Atlanta, Joe Mendelson and Ron Galliardo, I came to Panama and I got introduced to them, to, to Kevin Zippel that was working for, I think at the time they were talking about uh, the amphibian arc, the starting the process of creating the amphibian arc, the IUCN branch that was directly um, in charge of dealing with amphibian decline. And the idea of Joe and Ron was to carry on a project where that involved collecting uh, amphibians, all sorts of amphibians, not just frogs and toads, you know, salamanders, Sicilians, and keeping them in a temporary facility at two locations in Panama, El Cope, which was a chytrid positive site, and a free of chytrid site, which was El Valle, keeping them for about three weeks in captivity and then ship, shipping them to Atlanta, to the Atlanta Botanical Garden and to Atlanta. And uh, me and a friend, uh, Mason Ryan, Mason was in charge of the station, the field station in El Cope, and I was in charge with Heidi of the stage, the field station in El Valle. And that was, we did that for about four months and the results were amazing, fantastic. After that, <clears throat> and as I was rolling into uh, grad school, I was also working with some researchers collecting data in the streams to document uh, what was there before the decline. And uh, I remember one day that I got back from the field um, finding hundreds of dead frogs and dying frogs in the streams. I mean, I collected bags of dead frogs. And when I rolled into the, I was living at the Hotel Campestre at the time with Heidi. And I rolled into into the hotel and go to the cabin where I was living at. And I sat in the front porch and poured a, you know, Roman Coke. And I, I, I couldn't cry anymore because I, my, like, I didn't have any more tears 
oh, I felt so bad that I couldn't even cry. And then I saw people that I kind of recognized, like walking around, like looking for frogs around the swimming pool and the stream. I was, it was about, you know, about getting dark. It was like 6 p.m. And one of those persons was Paul Crump. And they were looking at a frog and I just kind of sneaked behind them and they were looking at a frog like, oh, what species is And I was like, oh, that's just my Liska Sila. And he looked at me like, oh, Eduardo, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, are you here for the meeting? I was like, uh, no, what meeting? Like, oh, it was, uh, the, it was the, the World uh, Amphibian Conservation Meeting that was organized for the WASA, the World Susan uh, Aquarium Association to create a plan, like to come up with a strategy to for amphibian conservation. So there were people that got invited from every corner of the planet, literally, meeting at the same hotel where it was, and I was not invited. And I was like, no, I didn't know about the meeting. And, you know, so everybody was like, what? You, you're not invited to this meeting. You know, you're, you're here. I was like, yeah, and I just found a bunch of dead frogs and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, long story short, um, I got invited like super fast to the meeting. <laughs> and the thing is that we, the plan was to create this strategy to collect stuff from the field and to, to start a program in Panama. So um, I recommend them to hire a local biologist because I wasn't going to have the time to do it because it was you know, going to grad school. That didn't go well. Thing is that then the Kittrick arrived like 14 months earlier based on the prediction models that we had and based on the 28 kilometers per year that was moving through the Cordillera Central. So, uh, and then we got into kind of emergency mode and the facility that was being built at the at the zoo, the local zoo here wasn't ready, so I suggest the people from Houston to let me talk to the owner of the hotel Campestre, and maybe we could put the frogs in the hotel. Which at the time the idea sounded stupid, but they were like, "Sure, do it." And yes, sure enough, I convinced the owner, and they rented two us two rooms and that's we outfitted those two rooms as a quarantine and a clean room and then I got in charge put in charge of collecting all the frogs and coordinating all the volunteers from all the zoos and aquariums that came down and, and you know facility people people that work with you know uh, plumbers and, and carpenters and ele electricians air conditioning people to finish the facility while we were collecting frogs and amphibians in the field and that was from basically March 2006 until um, May 2014 uh, 2007 when we were finally able to move the frogs out of a hotel and put them into this new facility that we built at the, the El Nispero Zoo and that's how it went and we started putting things together for them to breed and everything that we had was breeding, everything, every single species, even salamanders, Sicilians. Oh, we didn't get to breed Sicilians because we most of the time only collected one individual per species. 
And it just became this thing that people were so fascinated by. And, and we were able to find money and resources to put into this facility and people to hire and volunteers to just come every month. We had a new set of volunteers that would come and help us. And, and we did that since 2007 until May 2019 when we had to leave the facility for um, kind of sad reasons. Uh, some other institutions got involved and we couldn't be in the facility that we built anymore. So then we moved the facility to um, the hotel again, to the Hotel Campestre. <clears throat> but I'll tell you more about it uh, later on. Uh, the thing is that in 2011, I didn't like the direction that the project was taking because basically it was the people at the Houston Zoo. And I just want to make sure that people understand this. Houston Zoo helped to build the facility. They hired me to be in charge and Heidi, but Houston Zoo did not pay for the entire construction and operations of the facility. Houston Zoo was the institution that was used to basically send the funding from different zoos and individuals within the United States. And then that money was sent directly to my, my personal account um, to cover all the cost of operation and, and all that. <clears throat> But then uh, this other institution became interested in the project because um, they saw that it worked. They saw that it was possible to keep amphibians in captivity and save them from extinction, literally. Um, and they came with a very friendly attitude and a very friendly proposal. And we say, yes, we can work with you. Uh, but then when they saw that they could probably become in charge of the whole thing and they did and it's an institution that I'm not going to mention but they have a lot of power and influence and in, within Panama so everything was transferred from the Houston Zoo that did not own anything here uh, to this this institution and I didn't have anything against these institutions. They just don't uh, represent the interest of Panama. They represent the interest of other, a different country, you know. So to me, it didn't make sense that a country that, like an organization from a different country was in charge of the Panamanian frogs within Panama, you know. And that obviously created some fiction. And in 2011, I quit. The Houston Zoo. I did not quit amphibian conservation. I did not quit EVAC. Couldn't quit EVAC. You know, it was part of my life. But I continued working. I went to do a couple of consulting work in Peru with mining of uh, mining uh, projects, and then also had the opportunity to work in Dominican Republic, also doing amphibian conservation for another mine there. Uh, that I, I, I never uh, officially worked for this mine in Dominican Republic. Um, and at the same time, there was a mine in Panama starting, and they needed uh, somebody, a project manager, to do their amphibian conservation, and we signed an agreement with them. So I started working for this mining operation, this mining project in Panama, 
So I built myself another facility still within the same zoo, the same, the local zoo here. So there wasn't part of a Houston zoo or this other uh, institution. It was, it belonged to the mine. I was basically a contractor for this mining company. And I started working with uh, four species there and I hired my own people, three biologists, plus me, and, and we started breeding things. And later on, this institution that I mentioned earlier also became in charge of this project. So all these things, I'm telling you all these things because later on, that's what caused us to leave our special facility that we built to keep our frogs in Panama. And then the collection had to be split up between us and this other institution. And in May 2019, we moved our frogs to the Hotel Campestre, and now EVAC is, uh, has four shipping containers. We keep two of them, 40 feet long shipping containers that we adopted as laboratories. So we keep two of them with frogs, one of them full of insects, and then another one that's a deposit and potentially another frog uh, container. Yeah, I was curious about the facility itself. So. I mean, can you kind of walk us through what an average day is in terms of, I mean, I know there's obviously a lot of administrative and paperwork. I I know before you mentioned me that you were on the road just handling some paperwork and some uh, some uh, red tape type of stuff. In terms of the, the actual frog care and research, what does an average day at EVAC consist of from start to finish? Well, the main thing, Dan, and, and, and all of you guys that are listening to this, is to like any other facility, amphibians need uh, a clean uh, enclosure. They need a uh, control environment, so temperature is, is tracked uh, very closely. And we do spot check every day. And uh, we also go through their, um, any sick animal or sus- if we are suspicious of an animal that gets sick, we separate it when we start uh, any given treatment. Uh, at this point, we kind of we have a very good idea of what could be uh, that is affecting a, one of our animals after 16 years of doing this every day. Um, so we care for all the frogs and we also care for all the insects. Being the insects, our main focus, because if we want healthy frogs, we have to produce healthy insects. So, and that's actually what Heidi does. She's in charge of all the crickets, fruit flies, and beetles that we breed. And so we have two zoo, two keepers, uh, Jason and Evelyn, which are local uh, people that have been working uh, with us for uh, several years now. And um, they work five days a week, each one. Uh, also have a, a student discovering for Heidi. Heidi is at the moment, she's in the United States. She's been there for two months uh, with our son, Elliot. Um, so we have a student that she's, we hired her to care for all the insects. And uh, at the same time, I also, I keep getting all these students that are doing their thesis work or practice uh, graduation project to, with our frogs to uh, obtain the, their undergrad. Uh, which here we call it licenciatura in biology or na- natural resources. Um, at the time, we have uh, 
Spire Acoustic Project, where we are monitoring different places in the historical sites of the golden frogs and the Echnomio hyla rabolum uh, to see if we could detect uh, the vocalizations through this uh, bioacoustic equipment. And we have uh, three deployed already. Uh, we have six more, uh, five more that we have to install. And we go there every 15 days to check on batteries, change uh, memory cards. And we also do uh, monitoring. We recently, when uh, our friend and really uh, helpful partner from the Maryland Zoo, Kevin Barrett, came back in February, we were just cutting through the forest next to this uh, little creek. And he found a lemur tree frog, a Gallignus lemur, which I believe is the same one that Sam was talking about. So we found that population and we established a monitoring program there um, to count numbers of individuals. We found males, females, juveniles, metamorphs, uh, tadpoles, eggs, everything. So it's a very robust and, and healthy looking Limul population after 12 years of not being able to find them in the wild. So that's that's very exciting. And at the same time, we keep applying for grants to... We have these projects to start uh, mesocosm uh, uh, enclosures to see, kind of to soft-release some frogs or at least breed them outside the walls of the EVAC facility and see how possible it is and how successful it could be. So, but because of a pandemic, we had to be pushed back and, and some of the funding that we had to do all this research had to be used to basically keep ourselves alive and keeping the frogs alive because we weren't able to get any money for two years. Um, but fortunately, we have the Vicky Pool, which is a Fort Worth Zoo, um, she's she's our star. She's always trying to find ways to help us, along with a lot of other people, um, Kevin Murphy and and you know uh, Ben, a, a lot of people that uh, Mark Basalo from the Detroit Zoo that are still they still believe in Heidi and Edgardo and Panamanian uh, amphibian conservation project. So. We're still a very uh, diverse group of people with the same idea in mind, which is uh, not letting amphibians and Panamanian amphibians within Panama to go extinct. Um, yeah, so every day at EVAC, um, our focus is to keep our frogs alive, to breed as many as we could, and also um, attend visitors. We have a small facility where people come and see the frogs and we also manage a, a nature trail where we have the square trees that help us a little bit to pay for the bills and, and so on. So with all everything going on in your operation, everything is obviously done in these storage containers. I'm assuming you have to maintain a pretty high level of, of biosecurity, right? And how do you how do you make sure that the frogs are protected from uh, any kind of pathogen coming in as well as, I mean, anyone who might want to come in and, and things like poaching and whatnot. How do, how do you protect this resource? 
you know, uh, that's a good question because at the beginning we kind we were almost like a biosecurity level two that we, nothing could go, nothing that we were outside uh, could be inside. So we even built a shower and and food bath and and all that. But soon we realized, and and I, there were some studies that basically found out that our main concern to in terms of biosecurity was uh, the water that we use since the chytrid fungus, which is the, the, the microscopic fungus that kills or affects amphibians, frogs and salamanders, toads, um, was in the water and also in any organic material, a material that we put in the frog, into, inside the tanks. So every plant, every um, piece of equipment that we use outside, we disinfect with either uh, quaternary ammonium, uh, sodium hypochlorite or bleach at certain concentration, heat, um, um, and pentalconium chloride, any any of these disinfectants that, that could uh, kill this fungus or fungi. And also, every frog that we collected within, between 2005 and 2008, all of them went through this uh, prophylactic, prophylactic uh, treatment with a, this solution called itraconosol, which is an antifungal um, um, solution that they use in veterinary medicine. So all the frogs that we collected were infected with this fungus at some point. And you were able to successfully treat them? A good 60 to probably 68% of them, yes. So every animal that we have today were the the, the, the strongest ones, the ones that survived these 10-day treatments. Uh, with this really nasty solution that is basically the level, in, in my my opinion, the level of stress that these little critters were, were put through would be the equivalent of a human being going through chemotherapy. You know, these were like wild animals, never kept in captivity before. And then we had to collect them, put them in plastic bags, and then transport them to a hotel room and give them this 10 days treatment for 10 minutes every day and change every bit of disinfect everything that had contact with this frog for 10 days and disinfect everything that got into in contact with these animals uh, forever. So in terms of biosecurity, I think we have a very good system going on and we don't we're not too nervous about the chytrid. I mean the chytrid is right there outside our step doorstep. So, but we, we know how to control it, knock on wood. And um, we, we have learned to live with the chytrid uh, right outside our doors, um, keeping them, we've been very effective at keeping them outside, uh, keeping the chytrid, the chytrid out, out, outside our facility. Um, so, yeah. Well, as far as the, the, I mean, the main species that we're going to focus on our, our discussion on tonight, Adelopis satiki, which is the, the golden frog, even it's technically a toad, but it's it's a symbol of amphibian conservation worldwide, and it's a very, very distinct symbol of Panama itself. I'd like you to tell us everything you can about the species, from its, its natural history and its life cycle up to its cultural significance in Panama as well. Well, um, hold on, let me transfer in here. Um, the Panamanian golden frog, I mean, 
is is one of the most amazing animals you'll ever see. You know, they have this beautiful bright color with black spots. Um, sometimes they're just solid yellow or even orange. And I don't know if it's because of because of all the cultural aspect associated to them or what, or, or it, it, even, I want to say that there's even some kind of magical effect on people when people see these little frogs or toads, you know. So I felt into this effect from this, these animals. And I, I, like I said, I fell in love with these frogs. Um, their life cycle, you know, they are... Males are extremely territorial. They defend their territory in the streams. The males hang out around the streams their entire life when they used to be found in nature. Um, so from rocks or a piece of fallen tree along the banks of the stream, they call, they vocalize. The vocalization is a very special kind of a whistle combined with a hmm. So it sounds something like, I can't do it right now, but it's something like that. It's not very loud. So they also communicate by semaphorine or moving their forearms in different ways. And each way they move it had a different meaning. And uh, the females, um, they, they leave the water and they go up to the top of the mountains, uh, sometimes near the stream could be within a couple hundred meters or a couple couple kilometers. So after they metamorph, the female starts this journey to the top of the mountains. And two and a half to three years later, they come back to reproduce in the same area where they, where they uh, metamorph. And then that repeats their cycle again, you know. So a female reach uh, uh, reproduction or reproductive maturity at two and a half to three years and they could live in captivity up to 15 years at least in our case um they a, a female could lay up to 2000 eggs their best years for them to breed is you know the first and then for the next three to four years you can get an average of 800 to 1500 eggs per female in captivity we could if we wanted to get, if a female lays a thousand eggs, we can get a thousand tadpoles and a thousand metamorphs. Um, as toadlets, they are green and, and black with golden, little golden dots on them. Every Atelopus, the hundred species, or at least, I want, let, let me change that. Every species of Atelopus that we have in Panama, all their juveniles and metamorphs looks exactly the same. All the tadpoles look exactly the same. Okay, so <clears throat> they are—they look like toads, but they have like yellow or orange gloves in their feet and hands. Extremely beautiful. They are very easy to um, to camouflage within the mossy rocks along the streams that are normally covered with green moss. So they're. You know, they are culturally important here because their stories, you know, more like a folklore thing that uh, our native Panamanians used to believe 
that if someone found a golden frog in the wild, and if that person took the frog, probably a guy, a male, you know, uh, native Panamanian, uh, and buried that frog after a while, he will get a solid piece of gold in, in the shape of a frog. But also these frogs were associated with good fertility, uh, good, uh, you know, production of the earth with rain, with life, basically, good luck and fortune. So when you think about a golden frog, everything about it is so positive and so beautiful. And that's what you get when you look at, at these frogs, you know, and, and at least that's my perspective of it. So it's one of those animals, one of those things that you think this planet will not be the same without it, you know. So it's almost an obligation that, that we should do something to protect it. And it's such a charismatic animal that because of it, it's so charismatic, it has allowed us to include other frogs into the program. You know, so the golden frog is, is basically an institution in this country and it's been protected. We have helped to create a law to give it another layer of protection. We helped to create this law that declares the Panamanian golden frog a symbol of our culture and ecology. We created uh, the golden frog uh, national day, which is August 14. So... Uh, we we have we, we we sold the idea to to the town where we live, which is, is El Valle, that it's so important to to care for this frog that you know every August all the kids in this town dress as a golden frog, you know, <laughs> and in order for a kid, a seven year old kid, a five year old kid to dress as a golden frog, you know that that costume had to be made by their parents. So we had turned the entire community into a golden frog conservation community, which is just a beautiful story, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, certain species just have this charisma to them. I mean, here in the U.S., our national bird is the bald eagle. And in the late 70s and early 80s, the bald eagle populations were going down uh, in in part due to, uh, D, I think it was DDT, which was making its way up the food chain and it was just making their eggs very, very brittle. And now there's been a substantial rebound in bald eagle populations. In fact, we even have them on the East Coast where I live, down in um, Long Island, and they were actually never here before. And I think we've got like five or six, if not more, nests of bald eagle. But they just had this this charisma about them. I don't know what it is. It's just something that people tend to gravitate towards. And I mean, with 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 Adelope, I mean, really, all the Adelope species are incredibly beautiful. But with Zatiki, it's just there's, like you said, there's just something about it that's just so remarkable. You can't can't quite put your finger on it. No, I mean, I mean yes, that's you know, and and I think in a way. I think what it is, is that when people, conservationists and researchers, and even just amateur, like non-professional within the scientific, uh, the science fields that put so much good, positive energy into an animal, that somehow multiplies, you know, that, that somehow reach 
certain part of humans' brains that makes it makes it think that oh yeah, this is beautiful. This 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 deserves protection. But then at some point that stops because you know we 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 kind of we tend to think that because something is protected by law that the work is done. And I think that's what's happening in Panama with the golden fraud. Because still today, we still need to ask people and, and people in charge of making decisions that we, you know, that we need resources to care for these golden frogs, that we need to protect it because it's part of our natural heritage, our natural resources, you know. Um, but at the same time, when you show a, a, a golden frog to, to kids, even kids that have that for some reason are afraid of have a phobia to frogs. They look at a golden frog and they say, it's beautiful. It's simply beautiful. I'm not afraid of that frog, but I'm afraid of the, 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 the worthy cane toad. But I look at a golden frog and, and it's just beautiful, you know. So at some point, I think that we, the people that work on conservation and research, we have to kind of develop that ability to sell that feeling that we have, that respect, that admiration, that love for the animals and plants that we care for, or ecosystems that we care for, to the regular people, you know. Because I'm sure that everybody has the potential to care for something. Even if caring for something means donating a dollar or two to help those people, those, to help those animals, those plants, that natural space that, where this species uh, inhabit. And, 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 you know, for, for everybody there, you know, um, when, we, when we tell you that nature needs help, we actually mean it. And sometimes that help is, is just a piece of equipment. Sometimes it's, it's money. Sometimes it's resources or, or a piece of land or infrastructure. But, you know, when, when we ask you to help, it's because we already went through every door that we could knock on, you know. And, and when we say something is going extinct, this is going to go extinct if, if we don't pay attention to it. It's, it's going to go extinct. And, and, in in a way, we everything everything that we say is being recorded because now with the internet, it's really hard to get rid of things. So history will tell our story, and and people will realize that what we're saying is true. It's not. It's not. We're not inventing the data. You know, these animals are going to go extinct if we don't do something. And in the case of a golden frog, we we need like about a hundred thousand dollars a year to care for it for not just the golden frog, but seven other species that we're keeping here within our facility. That's nothing, you know, when you think about it. I think so and, because, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, just, I mean, just to put this into context for everyone. And I mean, you and I are about the same age. A, a, a lot of the species that went extinct in the late eighties and early nineties, I mean, a lot of these things were still alive in our lifetime. And this was sort of ground zero for the whole. I mean, obviously it didn't start here per se, but this was ground zero in terms of public awareness and a worldwide understanding that amphibian conservation had to become a priority. And 
you were basically privy to this whole thing watching it unfold in front of you. So, I mean, do you think that that effect is still, that still has an effect on people today? Does it still have the same impact as it did a decade ago, two days, uh, two decades ago, or even further back? I mean, there are two things happening. And, and yes, you're right. We, we watched the whole thing. I have seen God disappear. I have seen things disappear. You know, <laughs> there are species that I don't find in the wild anymore. You know, frogs specifically. But I think one of the things that's happening is that people are not understanding. Um, sometimes people think, oh, those species are threatened with extinction. I don't care. And this goes for the researchers as well. Like you, you probably you work with birds or, or butterflies or, or raptors or, you know, uh, uh, bald eagles, jowers or, you know, bears. If we as a society, as a group of people cannot care for those little things as a golden frog today, forget it. We're not going to be able to, to save those big mammals. <laughs> Or, or those uh, marine mammals like whales and dolphins and sharks, you know. If we cannot save a golden frog, which is, you know, two inches long vertebrate, extremely beautiful, doesn't need much, but someone to take care of it in captivity where we figure out a way to put them back into the wild or at least try to do that. 20, 30 years, 50 years from now, forget it. We're not going to be able to save the big mammals, you know, those that need a massive amount of space. We're not going to be able to save your beautiful elephants or your boring pandas. You know, if we cannot care for, for little things like golden frogs and bees and bats, uh, so we're failing big time at, at, at this and, and agreeing into, into like putting our brains together and putting our hand in our pocket. So somebody keeps animals alive to give your kids, to give our kids or the kids of our kids the opportunity to go into the forest and be inspired. I know what passion is, you know. Without even considering how important these animals are for their ecosystem, for the functioning of their ecosystem. You know, amphibians have been on the planet for over 300 million years. Can you imagine how much, like how big of the relationship is within their environment? They've, they've been in the environment for over 300 million years. I mean, you cannot, you cannot think that these animals are not important when, when nature, creation, God, whatever you want to call it, the universe, decided to, to make so many of them and keep them around for over 300 million years. And these guys are the middlemen within the food chain. They're the ones that, that interconnect an, an aquatic ecosystem with a terrestrial ecosystem. They're the ones that carry and, and transport all these basic elements and, and, and molecules of everything that, that you know from one environment to another they're the ones that make all these these beautiful forests make sense you know you have no idea how it feels to go into a, a forest a tropical forest that is quiet it has it feels like there's no life 
I mean, if you're a botanist, you'll be happy. But <laughs> botanist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to my botanist but, friends. Know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because but, but I mean, if vertebrates are going today, you know, vertebrates and 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 plants are are. are I mean, they, they, they have a very intrinsic relationship. One depends on, upon the other. But yeah, you know, there's still a lot of plants out there. Tons of it in the tropical rainforest. But you have no idea how it feels to listen how quiet it is when frogs are gone. You have no idea how it feels to go into a stream that before you used to find three, four different species every four meters and now you just hear the water just rushing through it and and you look into the water and there's no tadpoles and there's no microinvertebrates that were associated with those tadpoles and everything is covered with those algae that's been there for millions of years evolving just to feed those tadpoles and there's there's a whole machine there's a, like the machine of nature is somehow stopping and it will stop because you know amphibians are just part of it when amphibians are gone other things will be gone as well you know one of the first things that i noticed was gone in my little tiny little corner of the world was like when i was a kid we had american toads everywhere they were in drainage ditches and they were everywhere and then then they were just gone I mean, and they're not a particular, they're not an endangered species. They're not particularly, but they just, they were just gone. And I tell my kids, I say, listen, you know, when I was a kid, we used to find these things everywhere. And they're just not here. And it's just extremely disconcerting because you think to yourself, something that you took for granted is being so just like everywhere. And then it's just, they're just gone. Yeah. And, and, you know, is, is, like I was telling you earlier, like when I, I was telling Dan that, that we have two golden frogs on exhibit and, and people go there and donate if they want. But sometimes people look at our, our two golden frogs, a male and a female, and they say, that's it. You only have two frogs here. And say, yes, because we don't want you to come to, to this town without seeing them. You know, eventually we'll have a, a proper exhibition. But, you know... And those two frogs represent 16 years of my life and 16 years of my wife's life and the other people that work with us. So when you put all those years together, it's a lot of years. So imagine all the, all the species that we have, considering how much time it took them to become the you know, separate species from their you know, original um, um, uh, you know, uh, like sister species or, or an ancestor. Um, so it's, it, we're talking about hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years, you know, that nature has put into, you know, into creating all these creatures and to creating all these elements associated to their life cycles. And, and now they're just going to disappear. And like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, I got inspired in nature like i got in love with nature because of frogs so when i think about it like if some kid out there 20 30 50 years from now 
had the same opportunity to fall in love with nature. But the key for that love to happen is this particular species of frog, it won't happen. And that person won't have that magical moment when you actually realize that nature is fantastic and then you decide to dedicate your life to protect it, to help it, to fall in love with it, to fall in love within nature, you know? And I think it's a waste of, like if, if we could do something so we change that reality. I think that's, that's part of what we're doing. What's the ultimate goal for Adelope Satiki? Because before you mentioned about how Kit, Kitrid is literally like the wolf outside the door. How are you, like, what's your breeding strategy for them? And what's the ultimate goal here? Is it ultimately to get them back into the wild or just to sort of sustain them as long as we can in a captive setting? Well, um... We obviously started doing this because we believe that we could reintroduce them, that we could bring them back. That's the, that's the goal. As any uh, conservation project, that's our exit, exit strategy. That's how we, we could say we did it. Um, but we should at least try it. So the plan is that to, to start releasing them periodically and systematically and but we need the we need certain things to follow through that. We need uh, to be able to track them with uh, micro, like small, very small radio transmitters and and receivers and 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 track the disease when if they get infected, when they get infected, when that infection becomes uh, lethal, and we need to know if we could bring them back. I think that's our next three five years. Uh, project goal is to know if we can bring them back so we could say, sit down and say, okay, we c- we can bring them back, we can release them. Uh, so we all we have to do is just to keep breeding them for another 10 years, sort of speak. Or if we fail at it, if they cannot survive, uh, that would be a hard uh, pill to, to swallow. But we'll have to make the decision. Say we either keep them in captivity or we let them go. But at this point, that's all we want to know: if we can bring them back. We know that we can keep them in captivity. We've been doing it for 16 years now. But now we just need the resources to know if we can bring them back successfully. And I think that should that shouldn't be just a decision made by by Edgardo and Heidi and the people that work with us is we're talking about you know an entire group of animals that happen to to be associated with our culture in Panama but um what what are we going to do when when we we have to have this conversation about the jaguar and the harpy eagle, and all those animals, the, the white shark, all those animals that <clears throat> the people love to see videos and photos and take photos of. Um, when we have to to decide that we the only way for them to survive is in, in captivity, you know, this shouldn't be a a, a hand, a, you know, a, a small group of people decision. This should be an entire society. Uh, 
affair, you know, an entire group of people, uh, government agendas, you know, uh, instead of having all these massive meetings uh, of, you know, uh, world organizations and making decisions that makes no sense and setting up all these goals that in paper they look great, but, you know, the reality is far from, from it. You know, we're seeing things. I have seen things extinct, go extinct, and I'm 44. Yeah. I'm, so what are we waiting for? You know, right off the bat, one of the species that that comes to mind is, is the axolotl. And the axolotl is, for all intents and purposes, extinct in the wild. Yet... They're ubiquitous in captivity. They're used in labs. They're common. People keep them as pets. I mean, their 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 legacy is that they don't. They went from being one of the rarest species of amphibian on the planet to becoming, for all intents and purposes, extinct. And now they're so common that anyone can get one. Do you think that that might be the future for Antelope Satiki, where it might not even exist anywhere in Panama, but it'll be common in, you know, zoos or private collections or other places globally? I mean, like, what's your take on that possibility? I mean, at this point, if that's, <clears throat> if that would be, you know, we, we can look at it from two perspectives. The perspective of what's the role of this animal in the wild? and for their ecosystem. How important are these species for their ecosystem? And how important it is for certain people to be able to find them in the wild, you know, versus keeping them in captivity and declaring them extinct in the wild is an option. So let's um, put a, put them, uh, you know, into a commercial situation that we could sell them and help us to build up funding, enough funding to protect other species. Um, that might be a possibility. If you ask me if I want or, or if I would be able to, to make a decision of putting Atalopus tekai for into pet trade, I would say yes, because I'm done. I'm done trying to find money to, to save these animals. You know, I'm done. You know, I've dedicated 16 years of my life to it, and people still don't seem to care enough. Um, and Panamanian government don't seem to care enough, you know. Um, and and if we could, if we could share um, with others, so others can see how amazing these animals are and how fun it is to keep them in captivity. When when you actually get into keeping them in captivity and you see how amazing and fantastic they are, you know, sharing that love, sharing that passion. To help other species, yes, it's not the ideal situation, but is like at this point, it's like probably one of the last options that we have if we want to continue doing what we're doing. I think it's one of those options where people. I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase it. it I, it's almost like accepting defeat, I guess you could say, meaning resigning yourself to the fact that. All right. Once I accept the fact that these things are no longer going to be able to be reintroduced, or they're not—they're no longer going to be able to exist anywhere in the wild. Um, 
I guess that would be a situation where you'd say to yourself, well, we, we did everything we could, but the only option now is completely our artificial life. So, I mean, I've heard different people's perspectives on it. I mean, I'm not going to, I have my opinions about this, but I'm not going to weigh in, but there's a difference of opinion, I guess, where people would say, I'd rather have an animal go completely extinct and not live in captivity because that's just the way it is. And I've heard other people say that, well, we want to have them in captivity just to, just for the sake of having them on earth. You know, it's like, um, you know, do you have a dodo bird in a museum or do you have a dodo bird in a zoo somewhere? I mean, I guess it's that kind of line of thinking. Exactly. I mean, this is not, uh, at some point we did, we were asked um, what our thoughts were um, to put some of the flocks that we work with in, into Petri. And I didn't even have to think about it and say, no, absolutely no. You're never going to see me selling a frog. But our our perspective um, should change and have changed. And like I say, I think one of the most traumatic experience for me was that I had to fight others to be able to do what I'm doing in my country. I even had to fight other Panamanians within a position of power because they just didn't think that I was the right person to to do this. Um, just because I have my own opinion about about it, you know, um, just because I'm not institution, you know, I don't I, I don't belong to an institution that 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 puts their interest and and what people will think about them first, and and don't think about the the, the pragmatic uh, solution of of a problem that that we created, you know, um, so. It would break my heart if Atelopus Tateca had to go into pet trade. But my heart has been broken so many times just because people don't care enough to help us doing what we're doing. You know, uh, so it would be just, it would be just another broken heart. <laughs> you know? And and I, I don't 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 get me wrong, you know, but it's it's like what what does it need to happen to so we can, we could continue saving species, um, you know. Um, but if you ask me, if I'm tired, I'm not tired of keeping frogs in captivity and 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 helping them so they survive. I'm tired of fighting every day so we could find enough money to do it. That's what I'm telling you. Well, I mean, while we're on, I guess, we're, uh, what's that word I'm looking for? I'm, I mean, in Catholicism, St. Jude is the, is the patron saint of, of, of lost causes. And it seems like a lot of these frogs aren't, I don't want to say a lost cause because it sounds pretty grim, but... Um, in greater need of, of care, we'll say, if we want to put somewhat of a optimistic spin on it. But one of the other species that's an interesting dichotomy because they're very, they breed very well in captivity and they're actually very common in the U.S. hobby is um, Agalichnus lemur, which is also, for all intents and purposes, like has disappeared from some of its range. Now, when I was talking to Sam Sucre last, he's, he's also in Panama, 
Um, for those of you who didn't catch his episode, go back and check that out. But um, he he discussed finding wild lemur frogs, and you did hinted at it a little bit before. But what I'm curious about is where did they all go? Like where did they go? Why are they so critically endangered? What what unique challenges does Agalictus lemur face as opposed to um, Zateki? Um, you know, lemur disappeared um, because they got affected by the chytrid fungus. They were, this versus, you know, Agalignus lemur versus Agalignus calidrias or calidrias, the red-eyed tree frog. Uh, the red-eyed tree frog could breed in, in polluted ponds and, and you know, uh, swamps. Lemur is more uh, of a specialized. It needs pristine at least in Panama, and at least those populations I know, pristine forest conditions. It cannot tolerate uh, pollution or even environmental alterations and sedimentation of their breeding places. Um, so it's more, it's in a way more sensitive to uh, the environmental uh, alterations than, than, than the red-eyed tree frog. And it also produce, it reproduce a lot less than the red-eyed tree frog and the, the Atelopus tetecae on the other hand. So it has a low, um, you know, um, reproduction rate and it needs a specific pristine condition. So those two are two things that could affect the performance of the species. But at the same time, I think with Lemur was that uh, that's happening is that animals, some places they still survive because at the end of the day, a lemur can still thermoregulate, you know, underneath a, a leaf that gets hit by the sun at some point during the day, you know. Um, <clears throat> and that could, you know, like it could um, regulate the, the, the fungus, the, the infection, the fungal infection into it. And, and I think we we actually found two populations of lemurs in the last six months, in the last 14, 14 months, actually. Um, and they're actually coming back because they were gone. Like, these are places where I used to work, and they were gone, you know. And um, so I think lemur is, is one of those species that is just, is not... They're just recolonizing their natural habitat, you know, like animals are moving from one place to another um, just because they could, you know. And, and it could be one of those species that we could incorporate it to, into a, a commercial uh, um, program to, to help the golden frog, for instance, to, to purchase land, to, to, to build a field station so we could release golden frogs and, and keep track of them and protect them and see what happened to them, you know, instead of going out there and, and having to camp and, and, and do everything out of the bag of a truck, you know. I mean, we're kind of winding down towards the end, but I, I, I have one last question for you, which is kind of open-ended. I mean, here in the U.S., we have I, different ideas about things. We have our perspective. In Canada, they have their perspectives. Europe. What what impact does this type of conservation work have on Panamanians 
as a as a people and what does a future hold for panamanian amphibians in general i think um you know for me being a panamanian um I think the, the the impact of it is is a very uh, kind of uh, it happens too it happens too fast to them. It doesn't it doesn't stays. They absorb it. They say they get excited. They they do something about it for for about a day and then they forget about it for the rest of the year. So I think is a cultural limitation that we have as a as, as a country, um, and also we we tend to think that oh somebody is taking care of the the sea turtles, so I don't have to to worry about the sea turtles. Somebody is taking care of the harpy eagle. Somebody is taking care of the jaguar. Someone is taking care of the sloth and the snakes and the frogs, and someone is taking care of the of the you know uh, you name it of this native species of fish in Boca del Toro. So I don't have to do anything about it. And I think that's, that's, that's a very, as a cultural, you know, kind of, um, in developing country as a, as a group of people, we're not mature enough to understand what conservation is and, and the meaning of conservation when we look into the future. And and we don't understand how important it is for us to get involved with those people that are doing conservation, whether they're nationals or or foreigners. Um, we don't understand or care about um, the sacrifices that others are doing. So I could come and see an animal, even when that animal or plant is in captivity. You know, um, I think as a, as a country, we still we're like a teenager that's just trying to figure out things. The things it knows everything, but it doesn't know much about the real world, you know, if that makes any sense. But at the same time, we are such, you know, such an amazing country, you know. Panamanians are so warm and so special and so amazing, so happy. Um, but we still need to learn about the the love for nature and what that actually means for a lot of people social media expressing their love for something or the love for what you do in social media is enough and there the, 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 there's a lot of, a lot of confusion within social media and the real world and and i think a lot of people are still sleeping we still we need to wake up and <laughs> I realized that things are disappearing and and the change is happening and and we have to be part of it if we want to to be able to to enjoy uh, you know all the natural spaces and all the natural wildlife that this country has you know and part of it is is incorporating conservation in education at the early stages we don't have that well, I can tell you that, I mean, here in the U.S., people are people are fickle here too. You know, people will look at something one day and it'll be the most important thing in the world, and the next day people move on to the next thing. It's uh, 
it's it that's it seems to be a seems to be a problem everywhere i don't know what it is but it's just uh, i guess you know what is i think it's a difficult for, if it's it's a difficult commitment for people to well, uh, really to commit to, I guess, you know, I mean, you, you realize something's going to be a very hard, difficult thing. You're not really going to want to be able to put into the work, uh, put in the work unless you're really, really, uh, really, really concerned for it. I don't know. I just, it's one of those things that bothers me about people in general is I see people get extremely adamant about something one moment and then the next moment they move on to something else. And it's like what you said about social media. I think that that's also kind of a big problem is people see the face of things but they don't see all the inner workings and everything that goes in behind it you know like you said about conservation occupying uh, excuse me occupying you know decades and decades of your life i mean you and i are about the same age and and you know you've been doing this you know for forever i don't think the average person really grasps the amount of work that goes into this i agree and and you know for you know in 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 the United States at least I guess it's a proportion you know based on on the amount of people that each country has but you know at least you get people to get committed to help to to donate and I'm sorry I always talk about donations but we we're an NGO you know we we work through donations that's that's what we that's where we we get our funding you know and but to give you an example of how the the mindset of uh, of a lot of panamanians the, at least those that uh find social media as a, a source of a, a way for them to to express how they feel i i participated on the description of uh a pristimantis greta tumbridge you know the frog that we name after uh, greta tumber so um when when we released the the paper <clears throat> a lot of panamanians were extremely upset and first of all they don't know who greta thunberg is and what she's doing so they were talking saying you know a lot of things about it and they also say that there's so many other panamanians doing great things with amphibians in panama why the species was not named after a panamanian Versus others saying like, oh, a frog named after myself? I don't think so. I don't like frogs, you know. But instead of being the value that we just added another species to our diverse amphibian diversity list, you know, that it could, that species now could be evaluated and, and could be incorporated into, you know, we could give it a, a conservation status. People first focus on the fact that it was named after someone else without even knowing why it was named after this person, you know. And and that's 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 it. That tells you like doesn't matter what you do in this country. Um most of the people, most of the time will have an opinion based on the fact that first it wasn't their idea, second they were not part of it. And third, because they that's all. That that's all they can do. They can just have a negative opinion about something. Because that is cheaper in terms of how they invest their time and energy 
than actually investing time and energy into finding out the reasons why this happened, you know, if that makes sense. And But at the same time, is like I could not, I could not imagine not doing what I'm doing because I know that at some point in this country, these people will appreciate what we're doing. And we're not doing it for the tap on our back. We're not doing it to get the applauses. We're just doing it because it's part of what, this is what we do. This is our commitment. But that doesn't mean that we have to do it by ourselves. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's it, life is full of dichotomies, you know, and people, especially today, this seems like something that's gotten worse and worse as time's gone by, but people want the quick fix. They want to be able to say, oh, I did this and now I can sleep at night because I did this. And there's so much more to it. I mean, you, you can't just, you can't just go into something, you know, put a picture of yourself online on social media saying, oh, look, I did, I did this. Like, that's, that's great. You did it once. You did it also arguably to make a spectacle of yourself, but there's so much more that goes into it. There's so much day-to-day stuff that goes into it. And I feel like, like you said, I mean, people, the fact that people got aggravated by the fact that it wasn't named for someone else, it just shows you that people's heads are in the wrong place. You know, one, one, one last thing, and this is, I I don't, this is kind of, kind of a weird thing coming out of nowhere, but back in 1989, the, the, I mean, prior to, Zatiki, there was the issue with, I think it was the, the Monteverde Golden Toad in Costa Rica. And that was like kind of a, the, the precursor to the whole, you know, amphibian decline awareness. But anyway, uh, in 1989, there was a show on TV called, it was the Jim Henson Hour. For, for anybody who's into the Muppets and whatnot, this happened while well, Jim Henson was, was still alive. And the the plot of this little short was a golden toad who was looking for a mate, and um, it was it was a musical bit, and it was really well done. If you're into the Muppets, go, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube or something like that. But in the story, this one male golden toad is um, you know by himself; he can't find a mate, and scientists come in with a female in a cage to try and lure him in and bring them into a captive situation. And let them reproduce. Well, the end of the story, he ends up calling, finding the female, whatnot. And interestingly enough, in the story, the scientists just let the female go and go to allow nature to take its course. Which at the time, I guess, was an optimistic optimistic perspective about what happens. But, I mean, in reality, going back, you can see how something like that would have been incredibly foolish. I mean... Do you think that Panamanian amphibians are going to be able to exist at all in the long term without scientific and conservationist intervention? No. That's a sad thing. Yeah. I mean, um, as scientists, I mean, we, we, we're trained, we, we study, we learn to be able to do this kind of stuff. Nature needs our help, and that's a fundamental fact. 
And we're not talking about, because some people think, oh, you guys are playing God. We're not playing God here. We're playing being better humans. You know, because yes, there's a say that says that nature doesn't need us. We need nature. Well, we both need each other. Nature is there for us and we should be here. We should be there for nature as well. We need each other. Because the air that you breathe is nature. The water that you drink comes from nature. And, and the moment that you realize that everything, every moment, every breath that you take has an impact on this planet and it will have an impact on those generations to come. And, and, and that you realize that you could better the outcome of that impact of yours. Don't think that only scientists, and if you're a scientist, they think that, that we should not do something that extinctions, extinctions are a natural thing to happen. Yes, extinctions happen. Most 90%. Of, of the species of this planet have gone extinct. But the rate of extinctions that we are watching, that we're observing nowadays, is directly correlated to the actions, to the things that, or inactions that we are not doing, the things that we are not doing right. So it's, if we're trained, we study, I mean, it's like asking a, a medical doctor, if it's going to help a patient that's suffering from a from a disease or, or it needs a, a surgical intervention and, and asking, if, are you not going to help them? You're just going to hope that that person can't survive or a, a kid with a broken leg <laughs> or a woman giving birth. You know, we we study to do this. But that doesn't mean that we have to do it ourselves. Because the benefit is not just for us or our kids, it's for everybody, it's for nature itself. And 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 the moment that we realize that we are part of it, and we're as much part of it as it's, 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 we, we have to take action. We cannot just sit and wait for somebody else, for someone else to do it, or, or think, pretend, make ourselves excuse saying that it's natural that a species go extinct. Evolution doesn't doesn't happen so things go extinct. It's the other way around. Things, plants, animals, birds, you know, everything, microorganisms adapt themselves so they don't go extinct. They don't want to go extinct. You know, that's that's not what they, they that at least that's not the way I see it. You know. And, and if we're the cause of those extinctions, at some point we have to stop and think about what can we do? How can we help? So that doesn't continue happening. We don't have to accept extinction as a, as a normal, you know. Extinction is a, ter- is a horrible thing, you know. Extinction means gone forever. Gone forever. It's, it's that simple. It's very, very true. You know. Oh, I, I'm, I'll tell you what. I'm going to add your donation page to my link tree. All right? So whenever anyone clicks on the link tree from now on, there'll be um, a tab that you can go on to look at your website and make a donation. 
That would be great. I mean, you could be people could become conservationists by accident, just by donating five dollars, you know. And and we promise you <clears throat> that those five dollars. When you look at five dollars, you grab a five dollar dollar bill. You have hold it in your hand before your eyes, and you think about five dollars. What what does that represent? Uh, a coffee from a very famous uh, coffee coffee store, coffee shop. But those same five dollars also represent an opportunity to other life forms to to continue living on this planet, continue being part of this planet. You know, when you think about it, five dollars for conservation has more value than five dollars for a cup of coffee. You know, and 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 I think that's that's we should all. <laughs> Think about it, and and you know it's it's like even for us that we're asking you for donations. We donate to other organizations and other individuals and people trying to do the right thing. Because we're part of a system. We're not. We we cannot pretend that we're just islands floating in this space as as individuals, and and nothing that others do will affect us, or nothing that we do will affect others. You know. Well, listen, Edgardo, I know that it's a bleak situation, but I still want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show and just walk us through the whole chain of events. And look, for anyone out there who doesn't really know this story, I I hope that this was a good opportunity to really put things in perspective and understand how this whole phenomenon started. I mean, uh, he and I are both in our mid-40s, and I know a lot of of my younger, I know a lot of you are younger, and you haven't really physically lived through this. And you know, Edgardo has, I mean, I'm the same age as him. I remember being a kid and reading about these things in the newspaper. So, I mean, just to get perspective about how severe this is, I mean, I know it hasn't been the most uplifting conversation, but I mean, this is a real problem. This is a legitimate concern that's not going to go away. And I mean, for those of us who are in the hobby, those of us who are, have been into, into amphibians, frogs, toads, whatever, you know, this is the part of it that we have to acknowledge and accept and, you know, hopefully move forward to. So, you know, Edgardo, again, thanks for taking the time. I, I, you know, I wanted to give you some time to really get everything across, and um, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to do so. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, and thanks for giving us this opportunity. And for, for you, I know that some people don't want to hear the negative part, but, you know, every story has two, two parts, right? So I just don't want you to, to think that everything's, is so nice and beautiful and perfect because it isn't. There's part of conservation, and, and and it's not just me. Every conservationist has a very similar story. If you don't believe me, go and read the the Sixth Extinction by uh, Elizabeth Covert or or you know other books that have covered part of the work that we do here. And you know, conservation could be as exciting as it could be sad. And it wouldn't be fair if I just told you how great conservation is. Because it is great to be able to help others, to, to be part of something, to to help nature and to acknowledge that we're here in this moment, in this time and space, and, and that we could do something positive even when it, it involves a lot of sacrifices. Um, 
So thank you for the opportunity. Um, to all of you guys that want to work with amphibians, uh, but you're not sure what to do, give it a try. Go to a place with, that has amphibians. Be in contact with them. Go watch them. Go take photos of them. Go enjoy them while you could, while you can. And and one, t- one thing, being a conservationist is not just to talk about conservation. It's, it's being able to take the good, the bad, and, and the ugly that will throw at you. But the good parts are good enough to help you deal with everything else, with all the bad and all the ugly. Uh, so conservation, for me, if I had to do it again, I would, I would, I wouldn't even think about it. It's, it's, it's the best thing that I, that I'm glad I, I was able to, to do. It wasn't a decision; it just happened. But now it's my life, and is is what I do. And and as as much as I could, I like for the time I can, this is what I want to do. And I think it's. For me, it's very significant to to know what I want to do as an individual. Well, I thank you for all your hard work, and that was very well said. So if anybody wants to find your website and any kind of social media, I I know you have an Instagram page. How would they find you? Well, our Instagram is at uh, EVAC, or EVAC, E-V-V as in Victor, A-C-C, EVAC Foundation. And our website is www.evacfoundation.org. And you can also find me as uh, Edgardo Griffith or Ed Griffith uh, on Instagram and Twitter. And um, we are here in Ovalle de Anton, which is uh, uh, an extinct uh, volcano or volcanic crater um, in central Panama, two hours west from Panama City. And yeah, we, we have our facility at Hotel Campestre. Um, you are more than welcome to come and visit and see the golden frogs. And there's also a big population of golden frogs in zoos and aquariums in the United States. You could also donate and help to the Proyecto Rana Dorada or goldenfrogproject.org in the United States. Very good. All right, everyone, I want to thank Agardo for taking the time to come on and, and have a nice long talk with us. And look, I know this is one of those things that not a lot of people are always comfortable talking about. It's, you know, it, it can be a losing battle sometimes, but that doesn't mean the battle's over. So, uh, like I said, check out the link tree. Uh, I'm going to have a link to um, amphibianrescue.org. If you guys are interested in donating, I'm going to keep that, uh, that link in the link tree permanently from now on. So go check it out. And like Edgardo said, look, the simplest thing you can do, get out, watch these things, study them. And if you can, make a life out of it. So other than that, hope you guys enjoyed it and catch up with you all again soon.